we have a guest who's democratizing access to private investing. Ken Wynn is the co-founder and CEO of Republic, a multi-asset investment platform for private markets. Ken is a pioneer in the private markets investing world and a serial operator who knows how to build businesses. He's helped grow Republic to hundreds of millions of dollars in gross transaction volume over the past three years after Republic spun out of AngelList. After Ken was an instrumental part of building the investment and regulatory infrastructure at AngelList as their general counsel, Ken founded Republic to create a leading equity crowdfunding platform for both non-accredited and accredited investors. While their incredible progress on the retail crowdfunding side is remarkable, Republic's platform and vision is so much more than simply a retail crowdfunding platform. They also have an accredited investor platform, and they enable investors to invest into everything from real estate to esports and gaming financing to small businesses. Republic has done the hard things first. They've built the investment infrastructure for private markets, and they combine that with a Robinhood-like investing experience for private markets for both retail and high net worth investors alike. They've also been innovative in how they engage consumers by creating a Republic note, a security token that has created network effects on their platform for users. It's been really fun to watch this team execute at a blistering pace from the time that they started out with the idea of enabling investors to invest in startups at $20 minimums to building out a comprehensive private markets investment platform. Ken has been instrumental in that success with his infectious energy, tireless work ethic, and a drive to create democratized access to investing for people around the world. Today's conversation was fascinating. Ken shared his drive for starting an investment platform that could enable anyone to participate in wealth creation. We talked about how investing is part of the American dream, how Republic has unlocked access to private markets for all investors, and how community is such a big part of Republic's success. I hope you enjoy. We're going mainstream. Ken, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Michael, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's great to see you. I love that background of New York. I am in New York. So art mimics real life or the other way around. (laughs) Well, you've had a busy year, so congrats on everything. But before getting into Republic and and all the things that you're doing, I'd love to hear your story. You've had such an incredible story of how you've gotten to Republic. So what is that story? Yeah, thank you, Michael. I definitely uh, have a bit of an unusual founder story. My family immigrated from Vietnam to the Bay Area in California. And so growing up in the late 90s, early 2000s, you hear these stories of companies going IPO and tech and Google and Facebook. But just because you were smack in the middle of Silicon Valley, it doesn't mean that I or my family had anything to do with it. We definitely weren't accredited. But that fascination early on, I think, ended up staying with me. Ended up going to law school, started out a litigation attorney in New York and went into finance. And along the way, I think the story, the headline news that caught my attention the most was always tech companies. You hear more and more than Facebook and then Airbnb. And I had the opportunity to go back to the Bay Area and academia. Uh, I spent two years uh, as a teaching fellow uh, at Stanford and studying corporate governance, but Stanford happens to be also a tech hub. And so more and more that the different stages in life kind of just inserted me more and closer into the tech ecosystem and then had an opportunity to join AngelList when they first launched their first syndication product. So I joined, I think, their first non-engineer hire as the general counsel back in 2013, uh, 2014. And then... uh, Part of that work led to a change in the law, which is regulation crowdfunding in 2016. And I'm sure we're going to go into it. But in short, between the Great Depression in the 1930s 
all the way to 2016, you got to be a millionaire to invest privately. In 2016, all of that changed. It's like opening up the floodgate. And that's when uh, I and the team set out to found and launch a republic. That's fascinating. And it seems like you really have a variety of experiences, everything from the legal and regulatory side to working in startups to working in private companies. Was there a specific moment in your life that has driven you to make it your mission to democratize access to investing? I think with three moments, thinking back, probably the first moment was when my oldest brother, who is 15 years older than I am and was already very established by the time I graduated college, and he was an accredited investor, first one in the family to be accredited. And he was like, hey, Ken, do you know how I can invest in this company called Facebook? And I was probably one of the earlier users, one of the earliest users of Facebook. And I'm like, great question. I'm an associate at a law firm have no idea how you can do that ask around no one knew how right in the middle of new york city every law firm partner is a multi-millionaires and they're like yeah this is silicon valley stuff so i think that piqued a curiosity but also a desire to be like hey i want to be in i use this product i really like it uh, and wanting me as a stakeholder to be a shareholder. So I would say that was the first moment. The second one was when after two years of spending my time at AngelList, I realized that the accredited only model can only go so far. AngelList did open up the venture ecosystem to a lot more people, but you still got to be in the know, got to be accredited. And I think that moment when AngelList shifted their attention to focus more even upstream institutional family offices, that's when I was like, wait, is this law that's going to be effective very soon? And this is exactly what I, as a teenager growing up in Silicon Valley, wish that it was the case that I could get in. So I think those two moments rather than three in combination probably culminated in the idea and the passion for retail investing. Well, you're bringing up a really interesting point. It's been during a time where value creation in private markets has far outpaced value creation in public markets. And yet so many people really up until the past few years with, with what you're doing with Republic and others have done <clears throat> opening up access to private companies is enabling people to access some of this value creation. I mean, how, how do you think about that? And, and why is it important for people to be equity owners and things? Investing has traditionally been dominated by large financial institutions and ultra-wealthy investors at the earlier stage. As a company matures from inception to raising more and more capital to the point of going IPO, much of the wealth generation, much of the upside is captured during those private stages. And that world, private investing, definitely traditionally has been dominated, if not exclusively, the purview of the ultra-wealthy, leaving the vast majority of everyone else on the outside looking in and really limiting the diversity of ideas and founders that I think can shape uh, our future generations. So being able to invest or allowing, encouraging, enabling people to invest earlier I think that allies passion with profit. It aligns power with profit. And I think 
particularly the next generation, millennials, Gen Z, that's what they're looking for. By the time a company is listed on NASDAQ, your $10, your $100, your $1,000 matter almost nothing to the company. When a company is still growing with 10,000 investors or customers and not a, a million or a billion, that $1,000 of investment of purchases that you make matters a great deal, enabling people to align their passion with the desire to generate profit is at the heart of the retail revolution that we see. Passion and profit, power and profit. I love that. I love that way of describing this. I think we are seeing this groundswell of interest into private assets or investments where people feel they have some level of kind of interest or passion for them, to your point, what you're really getting at is equity, right? People are now able to have a share in something that they might not have had a share in before. And that's really the underpinnings of Republic. And it's really open to everybody. So what is Republic and what's the vision for for the business? Uh, It's funny that you mentioned or that you pick up on how we describe what are we doing between power and profit and passion? Our tagline is profits to the people. And what we are is that we're hopefully a leading and one day the leading investment platform that empowers people to invest in the future that they believe in. Invest in startups, in real estate, in crypto, in music, in sports. And yes, one day, even public companies, if you're very passionate about Apple and Nike, we want you to be able to do that on Republic one day as well. Right now, we're focusing on the you know more rarefied, the more difficult realms, which is early stage private investing. But yes, our goal is to enabling, powering people and the tagline profit to the people. And why offer this comprehensive platform across private markets, across various assets, rather than just a single asset in private markets? It's a great question when uh, the decision of building a business, ultimately a founder or a team got to ask, what is the ultimate goal? Why are we doing what we're doing rather than just the profit or how we're generating revenue. So if the goal is just to generate revenue and build the easiest business model, focus is easier than distraction, than a diversified suite of products. But Michael, our goal is, as I mentioned, to be the go-to investment platform where people can go and invest in whatever they're passionate about. So how can you roll out a platform with that mission and just enabling healthcare or sustainable companies? They're powerful missions to love, but many people are more passionate about blockchain technology. I'm certain that many of the older generations in particular are more passionate about real estate. So we want to make sure that people can come to Republic and find and match their passion with potentially profitable investment opportunities that speak to them. Because of that, we have no choice. Our mission requires a multi-asset, diversified suite of products so that we can hopefully at one day have billions and billions of people coming to cast their votes with, with the investment in the dollars.
So you talk about something which is really interesting and, and a strategic decision to some extent, which is you want all sorts of people to be able to access different assets based on what they're interested in, passionate about, want to invest in, see returns potentially in. When you think about that, how have you thought about constructing the platform in the context of should this be completely self-directed where investors get to really choose what they want? Or should it, should it be more structured? Because there's a real question, philosophical question in the alt space of whether or not investors should just access structured products. So products that are manufactured by these platforms and diversified in and of themselves, and then investors just get exposure to a broad space or completely self-directed where somebody goes onto Republic and can invest in any startup they want to. So how do you think about that balance of self-directed kind of choose your own adventure versus a more structured or curated way of building investment products on the platform? Michael, when it comes to structuring investment product rather than types of products or type of industries offer, we also want to provide a range of options for people because I think investing the new world of investing has three main elements. So passion is one and experience got to be another one. And the third one is convenience. Now everyone's time and attention span is so limited. So those three things are taken into consideration. Um, we all know that hardly everyone is passionate about mutual fund. If you put $10 into a mutual fund, you're not thrilled about it, that it's going to generate consistent return over time. So for those whose interest is low on passion and one, you know, that upside, that exposure to a certain asset class, we definitely, we currently and will build products that enable them to do so. And it's simple, maybe in a diversified basis, but some people like myself, getting to know a company, getting to know a technology, getting to know a founder is much of the value and the fun of private investing. And so in that case, the ability to invest directly and have a conversation with that company, with that team, uh, I think that probably still is going to be the dominant part of Republic as an investment platform for the foreseeable future. But we also will have, you know, structural products, as you have described, as we continue to grow. What you're getting at is something so fascinating, which um, I'm going to give credit to uh, Rishi Garg, who's a partner at Mayfield. He was talking about this with me in the context of, of consumer or social apps like Clubhouse and things like that. But he, he made the contrast between lean back and lean forward apps where lean back is totally passive, totally unengaged, but you can do it and maybe benefit from it. But lean forward is like an app where you actually have to spend time engaging on. Maybe it's Twitter, maybe it's even in person. I think there's actually a real interesting analogy there in the context of what you just said in investing. So how do you think about that kind of lean back versus lean forward mentality when it comes to private market investing? I, I love it, Michael, that analogy. I have not heard that before, except for, I think, Sheryl Sandberg's book called Lean Forward, uh, but in an entirely different context. One is just about being more proactive, more intentional. And I think 
obviously intention and proactivity in another way of describing it is passion so when people want to do something that they really care about as leaning forward and caring about maybe social issues it may have nothing to do with the core reason why you invest which is always return on capital but if you can add on other things that speak to you, that makes you more intentional and proactive, that's leaning forward. Leaning backward is for, let's say you're a retired lawyer or that you're a Goldman MD, and you're like, hey, I just want to have exposure to this asset class known as crypto. I don't understand it yet. I think it's a little crazy. Jamie Dimon used to like poo-poo on it. Elon is now thumbs up. Not but anymore. Not anymore. Now. Yeah. So I want to have some exposure into it. So can I just basically invest in some major pieces with a small amount and lean back? I would add a new category, which is laid out. That means you don't have to do anything. And we have already integrated, but we'll definitely even push that product even more. Retirement funds, illiquid. Currently, everyone, most people have tens of thousands of dollars, most professionals in their IRA deploy in some random mutual fund. So that's our lean down approach, which is you can use money, not from your checking account, not from your saving account that you can't touch for another 30 years, leave 5% of that or 2% of that through autopilot, diversify into real estate, crypto, female founders, whatever it may be. But you can just lay back and let it generate. So between lean forward, lean back, and lay down, we hope to capture them all over time. No, that's a really interesting point on the IRA assets because the uh, self-directed IRAs are really a great fit for longer dated assets, private equity, startups, which may take seven to 10 years to mature, have a liquidity event. So that seems to match really well with the time frame of an IRA. But I, I do want to touch on what one thing that you said there around the lean forward part of really getting involved and engaging with the companies, the investments that people make. You've done some really interesting consumer things with Republic in terms of having people create profiles, sharing with companies where people can help. Talk about how and why you've done that and how the creation of community is maybe different than how we've been experiencing investing in the past. I would observe two technological and social trends uh, in the past four or five years that I think have influenced our product ideation and creation. One trend is the digital community adoption. You even see Facebook now driving or focusing a lot more on Facebook groups. That's how people interact now. Clubhouse is a fantastic example of we just at the early days of new iteration of communities. So that trends to humans by nature where we're community, social creature, but technology has enabled the formation and the sharing of information in a way that wasn't possible just a half a decade ago. The second trend is the intentionality of generation after generation that millennial more so than the generation ahead and Gen Z even more so on wanting impact and caring about 
the consequences of their actions to the larger society. My parents' generation, as an example, when they were in their 20s or 30s, recycling wasn't a thing. Buying products that would help uh, the world to be greener was not in anyone's psyche. So over time in the 70s and the, day, uh, and the 80s, people start seeing the impact of what they of what they buy, their purchasing power. And I think when it got to, to our generation and then now the newer generation, is the shifting of everything that you do, even the clothes that you buy, but more than that, investment, even in public companies, I think the need for or, or, or how much people care about the consequences, the social consequences of their activities are definitely amplifying over time. And that's a great thing. It's really amazing. So the two, of the, the, the two trends in combination, I think lead to us focusing a lot on building products that have community potential and that can enable people to learn, not from a single source of truth, not from a long newsletter or a blog that we send out about the, the value or the black swan theory and the, the black show theory and black swan events, but about normal everyday folks sharing maybe even 20 video you know, clips on Twitter and TikTok, explaining why they're passionate or why they thing, an, an investment opportunity is good for them and learning from that. So I think those two trends definitely dictate uh, or, or play a heavy role in our product and ideation process. And are companies that come to your platform to raise from the community of Republic investors, are they finding this valuable or is that one reason why they're actually coming to the platform to raise capital? Um, that's a very interesting question, uh, Michael. It goes to the question it relates to another question that I often get. Are people looking to community funding, retail funding, as like the last resort, if you can't get VC capital, then you come to us? And that question is related to yours in this way. Any company that is consumer-focused obviously want to engage their customer even more. If you can get a customer who loves you so much to part way with their $50 that they won't see anything back for a while. Why would that be a bad signal ever for any institutional investor or sophisticated investor? That's an excellent signal. So the type of companies that I think in the early phase of the retail revolution definitely lean heavy on B2C. These are consumer-focused companies. And because of that, their customers, their consumers matter a great deal. So Republic had managed to attract not only companies that have large customer base, but we get like rave review for the product on how easy it is to use. And hopefully we're going to grow and maintain on that reputation. But I think that's a key part. Republic has two set of customers, founders, but also investors on our platform, companies are not going to be happy unless their own customers have an amazing experience on our platform because of that, that we, again, focus on building products that seem to be emphasizing engagement and educational and interaction just to give everyone a very good, inclusive experience. Michael, if I may make an observation about what you said earlier about how if you are um, 
a shareholder of Apple or Starbucks, that statistics have shown that you are more likely to buy Apple over Samsung or Starbucks over like Pete's Coffee. And I think it is so true, but it's even more true when you're an early investor. Let's say there's a small coffee shop by a couple down the block from where we live. And you're able to invest $100 into that couple's coffee shop business. And whenever you go back there, you have a little table for investors. I imagine whether you're a student or a retiree, whether you're a lawyer or a carpenter, when you go and buy that cup of coffee or a glass of water and hang out with your friend, you're naturally going to go to that coffee shop, right? The same with an early investor in a beer brand, in a vodka brand, in anything that we consume. So that psychological alignment is an, a remarkably powerful value. That's why a lot of companies look at retail fundraising not for money, not for a source of capital as the primary motive, but as a marketing engagement force. You've now built the infrastructure to enable people to invest into startups, crypto tokens, real estate, even venture funds. So talk us through both of those things. So the one quality control and curation, which is key to any marketplace, and then to the infrastructure that underpins that? We are an investment platform, first and foremost, and return on capital is ultimately our customer's number one objective. They can add passion and impact to their investment decisions. But if they don't make money in the long run, we can zero customer. So because of that, that we focus heavily on curating what we believe to be credible, high quality investment products. But venture binary return is just one type. A coffee shop, in, an, in the example that I just gave earlier, is unlikely to ever be acquired or, or raise venture financing and go public, but it very likely can generate robust revenue. And if you enable customers to invest under the form of revenue sharing, out of $100 the coffee shop generate, it passes back $10 to early investors. It is a very aligned and still can be very compelling investment product. For many, real estate in the same way, you're never going to see 10x return, rarely ever, and you very rarely see 100% loss. In an early stage tech company, doesn't matter if it's YC or backed by Sequoia. If you invest in one deal in the seed stage, the probability of losing all of your money, doesn't matter if it's on Republic or anywhere else, is exceedingly high. So all of these things we have to deliver in terms of information, but we want to make sure that what we bring on and curate and present to our community are credible and are in our best judgment of high quality. Now, in the long run, I very much believe that there's a thesis as to what we're doing here, which is the crowd, uh, retail investors. You're going to have case studies, I think, in a few years out that shows that companies backed by retail investor in the earliest of stages that were outside of the venture lens, just in tech, may 
be just as competitive in terms of viability and and how robust of an investment opportunities they are. So there's a notion of wisdom for the crowd. And I just want to focus in on tech as a vertical first, because that's still the main dominant vertical on Republic. There's a narrative here that, hey, you only want to onboard companies that are either already backed by VC or that are venture backable because those are deemed to be high quality. This definitely true to that. A company backed by you, Michael, or by Alfred Lin at Sequoia are far likely, more likely going to succeed. But what about the founders and companies that don't have access to you, don't have access to Alfred Lin? And statistics very much show that mostly female, older, or founders who aren't in Silicon Valley or on the two coasts have very little access to venture capital. So we do present investment opportunity that we find to be credible. And hope that if they speak to a larger retail public, that they may get the capital they need to grow and grow to be of a stage where they can be appealing to you and to Alfred. So we view venture retail investing as additive, contributive in the long run to the ecosystem rather than being competitive, uh, so to speak. It's a long-winded way of answering your question, Michael, but we value very much on traditional indication of quality as well as testing out models that can speak to people's passion, even if they fall outside the, the traditional VC lens of credibility. You're hitting on something that I think is so important, which is that one, early stage investing in many respects is about finding outliers. But in some cases, finding outliers means going outside of mainstream or what's more traditional or even going outside of different networks. We've talked about community in one sense, which is having people and investors, consumers support companies. But you've also built community around creating a diverse set of people who can help you find the right companies, funds, assets to put on your platform that may be overlooked by others. So I'd love to talk about community in that respect, because that's something that's so core to what you're doing and so different from what many others have done. The notion of inclusion and access, I think, got to be looked at under both lens, which is founders' access to capital, customers, and businesses. It's some crazy statistic, but even when it comes to business loans by the government, apparently female founders, representing 50%, give or take, of all small businesses, comprise less than 15, 1-5% of small business loans, which are supposed to be pretty much if you have revenue, you get the loan. The lack of information and access permeates all throughout all the different form of capital sources and businesses. But then you also have the customer, the investor base on the lack of opportunities. It's funny, but we noticed and we hope that as we, Republic, continue to grow, that we make it easy and comfortable for that high school student, perhaps in Detroit, whose parents, let's say, are not sophisticated investors, but in a classroom, instead of Fidelity or Apple donating computers, maybe they donate $1,000 in grants to the entire high school class, and each student get a chance to invest 
$10 for fun on a platform like Republic as financial education. I imagine if you do that, even with any sense of like scale, that you're going to have a whole new generation that are much more financially sophisticated, uh, certainly would be more than me. My niece and nephew now are more financially sophisticated than me when I was in college uh, or, or law school even. And I think that financial equity is very much a solution to social inequities, uh, the many inequities that we see. So our focus uh, on access and inclusion applies on both sides of our customer base. I love that. F financial equity is a solution to social inequity. That really gets to what you're saying here, which is that talent may be evenly distributed, but the opportunity is not. So you have to help find that, help people find those opportunities. What have you done in terms of building out this community of venture partners and this network of people who've helped you find investments in different places where others may not have been able to look? Michael, I can't really take credit on my own. One of the most fortunate things about my journey building Republic has been be able to convince such a committed, talented, and most importantly, diverse team of colleagues to join. So my colleague, Cheryl Campos, who had uh, venture growth and venture partnership for Republic, through her work, she launched a venture partner program, and now there's a venture fellow program for those still in MBA uh, programs. And soon enough, there's a venture associate program that's meant to go even you know, deeper to undergrad. But the notion here is that in order to attract diverse founders and to improve access and inclusion in the space, you also got to incubate and support diverse venture capitalists as well. And I think that as in law, when I first started out at a law firm, I think I may be the only Asian American law associate in a class of 60. Now across the board, some 15 years later, uh, much more diverse. And I think that with the proliferation of venture capital as a business model, you now have diverse talent in venture as a percentage much higher than what you saw 10 years ago. So the venture partner program is to build a community to support and to also get them to help eventualize for what we're building. Because the notion of accessing inclusion certainly applies to venture as well. But I, I would not be able to do that because I'm just one voice and one lens and one experience. And I think that to build a community, you need people with the same mission, but all different backgrounds so that we all can communicate and understand in, in, in the different lens and, and get more to join to join the mission and the, the, the journey. Interesting, interesting. And then to some extent, the, the regulatory environment, which you've actually been leading the charge on, you've been in D.C. helping legislators, regulators figure this out. What's been going on from a regulatory perspective that's enabled you to unlock access to private markets to retail non-accredited investors? Well, since the Great Depression in the 1930s, in the infinite wisdom of Congress, someone decided, hey, if you're not a millionaire, you should not invest privately because it's too high risk. Makes no sense. It stopped making sense a long while ago. 2010, for example, private investing was legal for most people. Gambling wasn't. Buying lottery tickets, highly promoted. So it obviously stopped making sense. But I think that when people are truly waking up 
to the power, to that false narrative. This is the example of the Reddit and GameStop saga that we saw very recently. It used to be that people think that the public market is much more low risk or safer for individual retail investors, and it's decidedly not so. Uh, market timing, insider trading, predatory uh, behavior can result in very, very risky and pitfalls uh, that you don't see in the private market. So I think both in Congress as well as at the SEC regulatory level, people understand that, people see that, and they're taking a close look. And there's no question in my mind that you're going to see more and more easing of the rules and regulation around uh, allowing retail investors to invest in more asset class. At the end of the day, you got to make sure, and that's the goal and the rule, and the reason why the SEC exists is to protect investors first and foremost. But what it means to do so and how to do so sensibly changes with time. Technology and society change faster than the law just by the construct of it. But there's no question that laws and regulations will follow. They have been following. And I have no doubt that they will continue to follow. So you're going to see this retail revolution really driven uh, in part by uh, a more relaxed regulatory framework around investing. Well, so retail revolution, I, I want to extend that point that you're talking about. So one part of that is fractionalization of assets, which you are in part amongst with some others in the alt space, kind of a pioneer on. And it's really unlocking opportunities in all sorts of alternative assets. You've done this in a few different ways, but one way you've extended this even further is with the Republic note. So t tell us about this note, because it's really an innovation in private capital markets. Michael, if I may first share a view about blockchain or distributed ledger technology and how it relates to fintech and to Republic and how it is so core, instrumental to our mission of global adoption of private investing or all things investing. My ultimate goal, and I think right now we have a community of over a million members. It's not a success until we have a community of like a billion members, but I think it would make me happy and I definitely would smile when my distant cousin in a small village in Vietnam can invest $5 into a startup or some investment products on Republic. Currently, that is not possible. To make that investment cross-border, the fee is like 30 bucks. And they don't have bank accounts. And most banks in Vietnam don't sing so easily with JP Morgan and Bank of America. Now, Vietnam happens to be a very crypto-friendly country. Surprisingly enough, people, even in small villages, do own uh, a fraction of Bitcoin or ETH. So the ability to enable global participation at tiny scale, $5 may not be a lot for a college student in the U.S. at Columbia or at the University of Michigan, but it's a lot of money for a single mom, middle class woman living in Hanoi, Vietnam, even today. So how do you enable small investment, small activities, small transactions at scale globally? You cannot do that without blockchain without this technology. And it has already enabled us to accept investment globally at a far smaller minimum amount than we did before. 
So the ability to fractionalize and automate, fractionalize any assets to tiny, tiny pieces, therefore lowering the minimum amount, and the ability to automate and streamline the process of confirmation payment settlement, key parts of FinTech and the retail adoption. Republic, no token, we do have our own token, as you mentioned, is currently the only, as far as I know, revenue sharing digital token in the US. And it happens to be available to our entire community. So the theory behind that, Michael, is that we want it so that even people with just a dollar can somehow share in Republic's success as we are still a very private company. We have a million members plus. If they want or they used to be able to buy or earn some tokens, uh, some Republic note token, and as we continue to grow, they're going to earn a little bit of payout potential and dividends. So the goal, the ultimate goal is this, the year 2030 or 2028, a company that had raised on Republic in 2017 now is as large as Uber or Coinbase and going public. That headline news across the New York Times and the Washington Journal about company ABC's IPO. You know when Uber did that? About a thousand early investors had a big smile on their face and about 200,000 Uber users and drivers had a big frown because they got the earned nothing. It's not relevant. We hope that when company ABC that raised on Republic a few years ago and eight years ago IPO, that you're going to have not only the early investors in that company, the 5,000 investors in that company being very happy, but every note holder, hopefully at that point, 100 million, they may get $5 back. It's not going to make anyone rich. They may get $3 per note, but for once, they feel like they're part of that story on, on that front page in that newspaper. And I think that's what people ultimately want and care about. Money and making profit and investing is not just making money for money's sake. It's about buying happiness and security. And you know what? Being part of something feel like you matter in a large society. $2 payback, but yes, you're part of this narrative that part of our mission of what we're building, that we hope to contribute a little bit to societal, that sense of fairness and, and hopefully more societal stability, especially compared to the year that we just went through in 2020 and early this year. Well, and it also sounds like they get access to everything that's on the Republic platform. So they're getting this diversified access to private markets, which as you continue to build that flywheel of private companies, of crypto assets, of real estate projects, of video game financing projects, they're going to get access to everything. Yes. And I'll give another shot at defining the Republic note token a little bit more succinctly. So the note is a, a revenue sharing digital token. We can share a portion of that upside back to the token holders. So in many ways, it's like a perpetual bet into this growing basket of companies. And even a thousand companies fail. If one company succeed, a little bit will go back to each and every single token. And that's what I meant earlier by saying that we hope that by doing that, and if we truly mature and become the go-to platform for every and any 
company that look to to raise and grow that the note holders have broad exposure and is and, and would be linked to the success of literally tens of thousands of companies and more down the road that's really cool because it just gives people access to all sorts of assets in the private markets that some of which may be very successful, other which may not work out as well. But by having diversified access, then they can benefit from everything on the platform, which is what an interesting innovation. Michael, it just occurred to me that the note token may be the ultimate example of the lie down and lie back example, which is, it is. You, just, either you can earn the note if, if you don't want to buy the note and then have broad exposure to the entire ecosystem and, and be part of the story without having to do anything. That, that, that's fascinating. Yeah. So that maybe that is the, the, the right definition of the lie down part of the, the lean back, lie down, <laughs> lean forward. And, and you can participate in any, any of those ways. If you want to get engaged in and help some of these companies on their public platform, you may be able to earn tokens for that. Attribute credit to you when we filed that lie down investing trademark application as a for our oh no, give credit to Rishi. He was the one who, who shared that with me. But yes, I'm sure he'll appreciate that. As somebody who's worked at Twitter and Square, so he's seen things from the financial services perspective and, and the consumer social perspective. But no, that, that's fascinating. I think we have to touch on some of the big news that just broke. So you raised a substantial round to grow your business. People are very excited about what's going on with the Republic. Why did you decide to raise capital and what are you going to do with this additional capital? Thank you so much, Michael. It's been four plus years out. And part of the reason why we raised this financing round was to show to the world and ourselves that what we're building now is of institutional grade. It's no longer like a fringe, quirky business model. So we're First of all, so honored and Broadhaven, of course, has been an early supporter and we're delighted to be a portfolio company of Broadhaven. But Galaxy Digital, Nomura and Naspers are also in the round um, together with the Motley Fool, the Fool Ventures. So these are traditional a brand. Nomura doesn't get more traditional and institutional than that. Naspers is one of the largest, I think they go by process now, one of the largest venture firms in the world. And they've never backed a crypto project before. The Republic Note token is Naspers' very first crypto investment. So all of these institutional investors' involvement, I think not only validate what we do at Republic, but also the industry, that is the retail industry, the blockchain uh, industry as an ecosystem, and this notion of the future of why adoption of retail uh, investing as a model. That's fascinating to see the traditional financial services worlds blending with the kind of next-gen version of financial services, which is democratization of access, but that's both in terms of traditional company equity and also the crypto world and the DeFi world, which it seems like you're really with your investor base, but also with what you're building, kind of the blending of all of those things. As you institutionalize and bring more institutions onto the platform like Nomura, which is fascinating. So to wrap up, I, I always ask everyone, what is their favorite or best investment idea? I'm going to share my investment idea that I came up with when I was in 
college, uh, no, first year of law school, I think, I don't think I was of age to invest in college. Once a week, my recommendation now to, to my uh, siblings, kids, my niece and nephews, is that think of advice that you spend money on. And so once a week, or at least once a month, just cut back on that vice, that one vice. Use that dollar to invest, buy stock, public stock back then, and now invest in whatever it is that you care about. But be consistent. So don't one day put it in shoes on stock X and on, on the other day put it in like wine. Like just pick one thing and be consistent with it. Literally one cocktail in Manhattan is like $18 in a college town, it may be six bucks. These things add up. And if you do that, it's going to be a really fun learning experience. In my case, I can't tell you what I've been reliably putting my money in, but it has done very well for me over the years, but I'm old. Well, no, I think what you're getting at is something really fascinating, which is, and it's ironic that you're drinking a Starbucks right now while we're having this interview, but basically if people, and I saw a statistic on this the other day, that if people had the three, $4 they're spending a day on coffee, if they had put some of that money into crypto or Bitcoin, or it could be in startups or the Republic no token, that, that, that capital has the chance to appreciate it in a way that, that those three, $4 spent on a Starbucks coffee every day may not. So I think that's fantastic, fantastic advice, even as you drink your Starbucks. <laughs> Michael, you asked me a question on that. You said there's a question that you ask everyone on what is their investment idea. May I ask you a question that I've been meaning to ask people that I know, but I have yet to, which is, I think the future is no longer about investing in a given range of options. But the question is, what would you want to invest in that you currently are not able to? Because that desire uh, from people to want to invest in new things, I think necessarily will make that happen. So I would love to hear what is one thing that you have not been able to invest for any reason that you really want to? That's a great question. I think it's actually starting to become true already with some of the infrastructure that's that's being built. We're just starting to see the early days of this. But I think so many people in the world love sports, me included. I played soccer. I collected football cards, basketball cards growing up as a kid. And I think the ability to marry exactly what you said, passion with the ability to invest is so powerful. And, and there's so much to learn for people who've never learned or understood investing in a more traditional sense, because maybe they find really boring or hard to and, and inaccessible to learn about stocks. They may be able to do that with something like sports cards if they love LeBron James and they could learn all about LeBron James. So I, I think we're starting to see this. Some of the infrastructures being built in the sports card space where people are now able to invest in sports cards in either fractional ways or, or in larger ways and invest into cards. But I think I would love to see that happen because for, for me, I, I love sports but the ability to marry that and combine that with investing, I think, is just the the kind of perfect collision of those two things. So it's not something that's not totally possible. It is starting to become possible, but I'm super excited to see that become more of a reality and, and financialize itself as an asset effectively. Michael, I promise you I will do my very best to bring sports investing on Republic within this year. <laughs> well, the other is not just cards, but sports teams as well. I think talk about the kind of combination of community 
and fandom with the ability to invest in something. And sports teams are, whether it's English football teams, and it doesn't have to be the premiership teams. It could be the local town teams where people are just, they grow up as fans and they love those teams with a passion. They pass that down to their kids and their kids' kids. Imagine if they had the ability to invest in that as well, not just be a spectator on the sidelines, but had the chance to be in the game with the team and the owners and the players. I think that would actually be a a really, really cool piece is cards are a financial asset or representation of players, but sports teams themselves are proving to be potential good investments as well. You look at the value of MLS teams have gone up massively. I think we'll see the same in women's soccer with the NWSL. So that that's actually one where if the Republic platform could give the crowd and fans the ability to invest into sports teams, I think that would be super cool as well. Maybe we maybe we give every investor an NFT that issue by the sports team that if they hold on to the investment, they have that NFT. If they sell the investment, the NFT goes with it. The, Happen too, obviously. Just knew Dude, what all the leagues are going to have to contact you because I, I think there's absolutely something here that they should be thinking about. Send them my way, but yeah, I anything that anyone is a stakeholder in, fan of a sports team or fan of a movie, I think they definitely should and hopefully one day can become a shareholder, a stakeholder. That's a great way to end this podcast because I think you've touched on community, you've touched on passion, you've touched on profit and it's just also so exciting to see having known you for the past four years and seeing you when you were just starting out Republic, just to see you build this business into something that really is based on the passion that's associated with investing, the community that's associated with investing, you're truly democratizing access to, to financial services, which is is such an important piece of, of what the next wave of financial services looks like. Thank you so much, Michael. And thank you for all your encouragement and support along the way, even during days and months that were so new and early that no one believed in us just yet. And you did. Uh, hey, the one thing I've learned is never doubt can win. So... <laughs> Thank you, sir. Awesome. Well, thanks for having you on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alco's Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going mainstream.